I want to share a message from God's Word, actually from the book of Job. And the reason I created this message is so many times when people are witnessing to someone in our culture, someone will come back and say, and this is like their Trump disagreement with Christianity. I can't believe in a God who says he's all powerful, who says he's all good, and yet he allows evil and suffering in the world. I can't believe in that God. And I think a lot of times as Christians, we're kind of thrown back on our heels. It's like, whoa, yeah, how can you believe in a God like that? I, uh, I remember first being introduced to what this is called the problem of evil uh, in college and uh, really being thrown for a while. Uh, how could an all-powerful, all-loving God allow people to suffer? It either denies his love or it denies his power. So I want to begin this sermon traveling back in time to 1755 in Lisbon, Portugal. Lisbon, Portugal, not a place you're probably familiar with today, but it was one of the magnificent capital cities of Europe. Its huge port on the Atlantic Ocean brought wealth to the city from around the world. And that wealth produced stunning buildings and luxurious gardens. The wealthy of Europe would travel there for their vacations. By the end of the year, the city would lie in ruins. November 1 was a Catholic holiday, All Saints Day. The city's huge churches were packed with people. And while they worshipped, an earthquake under the seafloor 120 miles away rocked the city. The quake probably registered 9.0 on the Richter scale. It said, I've lived in Los Angeles, and they said that a quake of magnitude 8.0 could destroy the city. This quake may have been 1,000 times more powerful. Tremors were felt as far away as Finland. It destroyed the city's churches. It destroyed 12,000 buildings in the city. People near the port when the tremors stopped, immediately fled the city in boats, only to be swept inland and drowned by a tsunami which sent three 20-foot waves crashing into the coast. Then the fires began, which destroyed much of what was left of the buildings still standing. There are estimates that 40 to 60,000 inhabitants of this city were killed. That would be one in four. Now, this might shock you, but as natural disasters go, this one doesn't even make the top 10. Uh, earthquakes followed by tsunamis have caused greater loss of life. But because this city was so beautiful and known and desired by the elites of Europe, its devastation rocked European society. Now, predictably, 
Some announced that this was God's judgment on the city. And then others pointed out that the packed churches were destroyed by the quake and the district where prostitutes plied their trade was left relatively unharmed. Go figure. The disaster caused some people to question God's goodness or God's ability to protect his people. French writer Voltaire used this earthquake as a backdrop in a novel which depicted the absurdity of life and the futility of putting any confidence in God's providence. In fact, just prior to this time in the 18th century, a German philosopher named Leibniz gave a name at people's attempts to work out this problem, the problem of evil. He called it theodicy. Theodicy, which means how to justify the ways of God to man. Now, this was not the first time that philosophers and theologians took up the question of why evil exists in the world. If you're a human being, you're a philosopher, and you've taken up this question of why does God allow evil in the world. But this was the first time that rather than putting human understanding on trial, and others were scratching our heads saying, given the greatness, the magnificence, the ultimacy of God, uh, how can I understand how God allows for this? The problem got flipped on its head. And instead of putting man on trial, it put God on trial. And in Voltaire's view, the trial didn't turn out very well for God. Since that time, the problem of evil has been framed this way. Evil exists in the world. Either God is not all-powerful to prevent evil, or God is not all-good in allowing evil. And that, that's a fair question. I don't think it's a question we should dismiss. Uh, you live long enough as a human being, and you have to confront this, either from evil that has come into your own life or what you've observed in others. Why does God allow innocent children to suffer? Why, why release your rud? You know, the little eight-year-old girl, she's never been found. It's quite certain that she was abused and murdered out of the homeless shelter in southeast D.C. It was in the news a while ago. And you just wonder, you see pictures of her. I think, that could be my granddaughter. Why did God allow that? Why does he permit ISIS to destroy homes and murder people. Well, by the 19th century, for many philosophers, the question went beyond a question of God's character because he allowed evil to questioning God's existence. We should question even if God exists, that evil would exist in the world. And so you have people today who are atheists, because of the existence of evil. And it's not just philosophers. This isn't just a philosophical question. I remember talking with a young woman who told me that when she was 11 years old, her mother was diagnosed with cancer. She said she prayed to God, God, if you're there, heal my mother. Her mother died, and so she concluded God does not exist. No one was home to hear my prayer. So evil is a problem. 
Everyone agrees with that. When cancer strikes, when war reduces a society to destitution, when a child is wantonly abused or neglected or a superstorm kills thousands, leaving hundreds of thousands homeless, or an airliner is shot out of the sky for no good reason. This is not the way things are supposed to be. And the human heart should rise up and say, this is wrong. Some of you in this room are more familiar with this than others of us because your career, your life occupation, your vocation is devoted to fighting evil. If you practice medicine or you are involved in law enforcement or the military or fire protection, you are daily seeing the effects of evil. But all of us face this. And for some of us, it can drive us to depression or despair. So all that's leading up to what does the Bible have to say about this? And what do we say to a person who says, I can't believe in God because evil exists in the world? I can't even consider becoming a Christian when you tell me this God is a God of love. Now, the problem, and the title of this message, by the way, is the problem with the problem of evil. Because the way people frame the question brings with it certain presuppositions. And so we've got to examine the question before we can consider the answer. How you frame the question shapes the discussion. And there are assumptions behind this question which are simply not true. And we're going to look at those questions and we're going to look at why there is a problem with this problem of evil. So we're going to look at the book of Job. Open to Job chapter 38. And while you're turning there, the first point I want to make today is that the problem with the problem of evil is that we assume God is small and we are big. There's an assumption in asking this question. It says, God is small and I am big. Now, most people in this room know this book but I'm going to review. Book of Job introduces us to a man who was famous for his integrity and his righteousness. Not only was he morally and righteously, religiously pure, but he treated others blamelessly. He lived a very prosperous life. He was well known for being blessed by God. Unbeknownst to Job, Satan appeared before God and told God that Job's righteousness was simply the man's attempts to stay on the gravy train of God's blessing. It had nothing to do with Job loving or honoring or worshiping God. So God permitted Satan to cause unimaginable suffering to come on the man. So in one day, he loses his fortune and his family. In one day, he was reduced to poverty and childlessness. His life was ruined. And still, he worshiped God. So God brags about him to Satan. He says, you see, you were wrong. So Satan upped the ante. He says he worships you because he still has his health. So God permitted Satan to take that as well. The man ends up with painful boils from the bottom of his feet to the crown of his head. 
Well, word gets out that Job's life has been wrecked. And he has three friends come from a distant land to comfort him and to counsel him. When you read through the book of Job, you find out that most of what they say about God is actually quite accurate. But still, their basic message was at fault. Here's what they said to Job. Job, here's our diagnosis for why this evil has befallen you. You are suffering for hidden sins. God is punishing you for sins that you are refusing to confess. If you just repent, God will make it all better. Well, Job, instead of going into this deep period of introspection, he says, no way. I've lived a blameless life. Blameless in the sense, not that it's sinless, but anytime I've done wrong, I've made it right. I've done the right thing. There's nothing sinful in my life to warrant God's treating me this way. And so for 35 chapters of a 42-chapter book, we have Job and his friends back and forth about why Job should be suffering. Then we get to chapter 38. When God finally enters into this very painful conversation. Look at how he begins his answer to Job as to why he is suffering as he is. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? The questions continue for two chapters. God asked Job to compare himself to the one who created all things in all their beauty, all their wonder and power. He says, Job, you, you guys have been questioning me all this time. You got questions about me? Let me ask you a few questions about you. Let me ask you about your wisdom. When God gets done with this tour of the created order, Job replies. Look at chapter 40. God concludes this extended questions about whether Job has all these things about creation figured out. And the Lord concludes in verse 1 of chapter 40, the Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. She says, you're gonna, you want to contend with me? You want to find fault in me? Well, just answer a few of these questions that I've raised with you. And Job responds, verse 3, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I'm of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. 
I've spoken once, and I'll not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Job humbled himself before God. He said, I can't answer these questions. I'm not the big man I thought I was. We live in an age of, you know, you miss this because it's everywhere. We live in an age of massive human pride. Um, the exaltation of human reason and human ability probably began sometime in the last 300 years. It started with intellectuals. It then moved to everybody. Pride defines just about all of us. And we think, we moderns, we think that any problem we face, any question we may ask of the physical or moral word can be answered through human reason. First thought that comes to our mind in the face of a problem is there must be an app for that. Philosopher John Locke, writing in the 17th century, Sentence is a little hard. Listen carefully. He said, reason, reason which is the voice of God in man. Well, that's astounding. Reason which is the voice of God in man could not but teach him and assure him that pursuing that natural inclination that man has to preserve his being. So Locke is saying that if you pursue, if you use your reason, to pursue what will preserve your being. If man does that, he followed the will of his maker. In other words, John Locke is saying, if you pursue what, what you reason will result in human flourishing, you are thinking God's thoughts and doing his will. So what's a good life look like? I'm running after that. I'm trying to find my way to that. That's God's will. Whatever you think is God's will. I just find that astoundingly arrogant. Locke believed that God had given us reason to think his thoughts after him so that human reason was God's reason. Now, when you present it that way, it does sound kind of foolish, but that's how we tend to think today. What happened in our culture is that pretty soon people began to think that if I have God's reasoning ability, why do I need God? And so God got pushed further and further into the corner is. The corner. Problem is, you have to strain pretty hard to make human reason live up to John Locke's lofty abilities. How many of us have used reason to screw up really bad? You talk to any honest medical scientist, to any research physicist, to any molecular biologist. Have we made massive strides in understanding the cosmos? Of course we have. Have we plumbed the depths of the questions that God poses to Job? Hardly. I've, I've heard biologists say that the deeper they go in understanding the structure, the molecular and anatomic, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the tiniest, tiniest 
structures of the cell, the less they know. It's far more complicated than they ever dreamed. So I'm not trying to say that the pursuit of knowledge and the use of reason is wrong. I'm trying to say we need to use our reason with humility. There are some questions that may not be answerable. And God's willingness to allow evil to exist in the world is one of those questions. We just live in this age of great confidence. Pride grows like crabgrass everywhere. And if reason, as John Locke thought, gives us uh, the means of thinking God's thoughts, then we all become gods. You look at the technological advances of the last 250, 300 years, they are astounding. But I don't think they've made the earth necessarily a better place. In fact, you look around the globe at the devastations that man has wrought. And I'd say we make for pretty sorry gods. So the first problem with the problem of evil is to even think that if I reason about this, I can figure it all out. We make too little of God and too much of man. We exalt human reason. Second problem with the problem of evil is that we think evil is manageable. That was the problem with Job's friends. See, they had a very simple system that they set up when it comes to God's blessing. Keep your life from sin, you will prosper. Sin and refuse to repent, you will suffer. Job is suffering, therefore Job has sinned. Job could manage his suffering by confessing his sins. It's very simple. Very simple. Job, just admit. We know you're holding back. You're too proud to admit to us. Just admit your sin. Everything will be fine. The irony of the whole book is the backstory. The very reason Job is suffering is because he's righteous. Because there's no sin he's holding back on. That's the whole point. It's, it's unjust suffering. So what God does in chapter 40 is he presses home the point of how unmanageable evil is by bringing Job's attention to two beasts, two beasts that were greatly feared in the ancient world. One, a massive ox-like creature called Behemoth, and the other, a dragon-like creature who lives on land and sea called Leviathan. Let's look at them. Look at chapter 40, verse 6. I'm sorry, verse 15. Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you, eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him, where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plant he lies in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. 
For his shade, in his, for his shade the lotus trees cover him. The willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by the eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? This beast is wild, massive, untamable. He is terrifying. Come near to him to capture him, and he'll stomp you before he eats you. That's behemoth. So the Lord said, I'd like to introduce you to one of the creatures I created. Then we get to Leviathan. Let's read from chapter 41, verse 1. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? Or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put a leash on him for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You'll not do it again. Look at verse 20. We have to skip because of time. Out of his nostrils comes forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals and a flame comes forth from his mouth. Down to verse 26. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotted wood. The arrows cannot make him flee. For him, sling, sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him, he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On earth, there is not like him a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is the king over all the sons of pride. Some try to dismiss this as a mythological beast. We've all got leviathans in our lives. You got any movies this summer? In chapter 3, we first hear of Leviathan, where he's described as the bringer of death. In the book of Revelation, he's equated with Satan, a great fire-breathing dragon. He comes to kill, to steal, to destroy. He is humankind's ultimate enemy. And as the text says, Job knows no weapon can destroy this mighty, horrible, wicked Dragon. Now, again, we live in an age of human invincibility. The age that tells us that every human problem has a human solution. There are people who'd want to convince you that no Leviathan 
is beyond our power to tame him. And yet our monsters multiply. You think of the destructive power of the weapons of war today. We can slow cancer down. We can even cure it. But we still all die. Superstorms threaten our great cities and super bugs threaten to eat us from the inside out. And if we can dodge all those bullets, global warming and the earth is undeniably getting warmer and we have no idea what the consequences may be. At some point you have to realize You have to realize that we may, by the grace of God, be able to ward off evil. Ultimately, the final destructive power of Leviathan, which is death, comes to all of us. So those who challenge God for allowing evil in the world have only themselves to fall back on. And so we just think, we spend our lives thinking, I can manage that. We can fix that. I'll Google it. Somebody solved this problem before. Evil is not ultimately manageable. A third problem with the problem of evil is that we think God is impersonal. And this is, I think, the glory of the book of Job. But it's easy to miss this point. Look at chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, and he's referring to himself, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, you can see here that Job has come to realize that he is small and God is big. He's come to realize evil is not manageable ultimately. But the thing that is so amazing about these six verses is that Job is acknowledging that God, in all his greatness, in all his power, in all his inscrutability, wants a relationship with Job. Look at verse 4. It's fascinating. Job says, here. He's speaking to God. He says, here, and I'll speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Job is stating that God listens to his questions and answers them. Now, the background to this is found in chapter 31. Don't go there because we don't have time. But after Job becomes totally frustrated with his friends and the way they've been pressing him all this time, he makes an appeal in their presence to God. Verse 35, oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. He's saying, I'm signing off on this argument. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. 
She's saying, you're charging me with wrongdoing? Let's take the indictment. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give God an account of my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. So Job is saying to his friends, you can bring your charges against me. I'm appealing my case to God. So in chapter 38, when the Lord finally answers Job, he says, we read it already in verse 3, dress for action like a man. I'll question you, you answer me. Here's the point. Here's the point of the book of Job. God owed Job no answer. God could have told Job to just shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. You should submit to the pain and worship me. Instead, God says, Job, I'll enter into your questions. I'll enter into those questions that have been brought on by this horrible pain you've endured. I'll disclose myself to you. I will relate to you in your pain and your perplexity. But what's really odd is that God doesn't really answer Job's question. The book of Job is not a theodicy. It does not justify the ways of God to man. God does not justify his ways to Job. All God does is reveal himself. He reveals his power and his skill and his beauty and his terror. He reveals that behemoth and Leviathan may be terrifying, but they are God's creation under his control. I made them, he says to Job, and even though you're no match for them, they are under my control. Notice, God doesn't rebuke Job's complaint. You think it's kind of arrogant? Job says, I'm innocent, I want God to be my judge. Never rebukes him for that. He doesn't punish him for questioning his plight. Job spends chapters complaining about his situation. God never, never corrects him, never punishes him for that. Instead, God engages Job. Instead, Job enters into a relationship with God at God's invitation. This book's not pretty. Life is not pretty, except for certain occasions like Olivia sitting over there in the stroller. Okay? It's hard. It's confusing. What God says is, I'm not going to answer all your questions. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to enter into relationship with you. I'm going to enter into your pain. I'm going to entertain your questions, and I'm going to answer them by showing you myself. God could have ended the whole affair in chapter 31. He could have said, okay, Job, okay, Job's friends, game over. I'm going to tell you what's going on here. Satan wanted to test Job because Job is righteous. So I allowed it, and Job passed the test. And Job proved that true worship, worship with no strings attached, exists on the earth. That people follow God for who he is and not what he gives them. Instead of doing that, I mean, it blows my mind. At the end of chapter 42, I think Job got all this, got double back, but he never found out why he lost the stuff in the first place. 
God gives Job something better than reasons for him suffering. He gives him relationship within his suffering. And I will take that any day. You see in chapter 42, Job gets it. Verse 5, he said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, now Job says, I see myself in the context of who you are, of your majestic greatness. I regret that I thought I could match your thoughts. Job doesn't despise himself in comparison to himself or in comparison to his friends. He despises himself in comparison to God. He'd heard of God before. Oh, I'd been in a lot of sermons. I read all those books the pastors recommended. I've got good theology. But now... Job has entered into a relationship with God in the most agonizing moment of his life. And he says, having a relationship with him, that's enough. That's enough. So he never hears why God causes his pain in the first place. To know him is enough. See, the problem with the problem of evil is it presumes this remote God. What you have in the 18th century, you've probably heard of deism, is that God is this distant being who created the universe like a great watchmaker, wound it up, put it down, and walked away. Has no more involvement. He's impersonal. He's remote. He doesn't care. It's just the way it works. Use your reason to figure it out. He puts you on this earth with reason so you could run the thing in his absence. That is not the God of the Bible. He is personal. He enters into your suffering, your pain, your perplexity. He's not distant. He's not far off. He draws near to those who draw near to him in their pain. Now, the book of Job is just one stepping stone in the progress of a cosmic drama. And as you know, that drama finds its climax in Jesus Christ. See, Job prefigures Jesus, who came to experience unimaginable suffering and evil for no good apparent reason. The ultimate righteous man experiences the ultimate degradation and shame. Physical and psychological torment, relational alienation like no human being ever has or ever will known. He came as a man. He made himself small. He was born to poor parents He lived through all the indignities that you and I face and then far, far worse. He showed that through faith in God, the sick and the insane could be healed. Storms could be stopped. The dead could rise again. 
But his miracles were only temporary solutions to ongoing human problems. His work, his works just show us there's a promise of a better future, a future age in which suffering and evil are eliminated. But in the meantime, well, really, ultimately, after he shows, he demonstrates all this power, he becomes powerless. And he enters into our pain by suffering a grossly unjust trial, shameful treatment, public humiliation, and then the absolute rejection of his father who abandoned him to death on a cross so that he could die the death that you and I deserve. That should cause questions about God. Why would you do this to your son? Forget about my stuff. Jesus showed that he defeated Leviathan when he rose again. It's all taken care of. But the Bible never answers Leibniz's question, why does a good and powerful God allow evil and suffering? And the Bible doesn't treat you and me like somehow we are owed an answer And if we just think long enough, we can come up with it. And if we think long enough and think we can't come up with it, well, then God must not exist. There are hints as to, and and we see God causes all things to work together for the good. We hang on to that. But they are not comprehensive answers. What the Bible does is reveal a transcendent God who dwells in unapproachable wisdom and majesty, a God who has all power over all evil, even the greatest evil, death itself, a God who was willing to take on human flesh, suffer unimaginable evil, and conquer it. And out of that experience, that God offers you relationship, real, sympathetic relationship. He'll enter into your questions, your complaints, your pleas, and he will treat you with dignity as one made in the image of God. When you see the face of God in the face of Christ, like Job, you say, that's enough. That's all I need. I repent of thinking I can play in your league or that I can know all that you will know. It's enough for me to worship. The problem with the problem of evil is that we think way too much of ourselves. The problem with the problem of evil is we think we can manage the evil that comes into our lives. The problem with the problem of evil is that we think God is impersonal and uncaring. But when you see that you're small and he's great, when you see that you are not ultimately able to manage all your problems, when you see that he'll enter into you and draw near to you in your perplexity and your pain, And when you see that Jesus Christ has gone before you and suffered in ways that... uh, I just always feel bad. I can't wrap my mind enough around what it must have felt like to be abandoned by the Father on the cross. 
But when you press into that, suddenly your life gets perspective. Suddenly you can say, that's enough. That's enough. Having you is enough, regardless.